Well, let me invite you, friends, to take your Bibles and to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 24, the last chapter in this incredible book that we've spent the last few months walking through together. Some of the first feedback uh, that I got on some of my first sermons I ever preached came from my granddaddy who'd been preaching for 50 years by the time I first entered a pulpit. Got some of my first chances to preach uh, in his pulpit as a teenager in high school. Uh, he was a, in his retirement serving as a bivocational pastor at a little church that was gracious enough to listen to me drone on without much to say. I don't remember everything my granddaddy said to me about preaching, but I do remember uh, one piece of advice that he must have said over and over because it stuck so deep in my mind. Matt, you got to learn when to sit down. You got to learn when to sit down. I think partly he meant don't preach too long. You know, he was a big believer in short sermons. He, uh, he thought people would just get up and walk out if he went too close to noon. And he probably had seen it happen before. You know, this was the day of the big Sunday lunch. You know, in small town Alabama, there were roasts at risk of burning all over, all over the town. He knew better than to put those roasts in danger. I'm not going to ask how many of you wish I'd pay more attention to that piece of advice. I mean, mostly what I think he meant, though, when he said learn when to sit down is you got to know the right place to end your sermon. you got to know the right moment. You know, you don't want to choose the wrong note to end on. You don't want to hit some sort of emotional climax and then drone on for another 15 minutes. I think that's what he meant. I wonder for those of you who have been with us for most of this Samuel sermon, uh, where would you end the story of David if it was up to you? What do you think would make the most sense? Maybe 2 Samuel 7, which we looked at a few weeks back. This was the place where God promised to David at the, at the peak of David's power and influence, I'm going to build you a house that will stand forever. Maybe the section right after that one, you know, where David sweeps up the remaining enemies who'd been giving God's people so much trouble, he gets rid of them. And, and there's peace, actually, for the first time in a long time in Israel among God's people. That'd be a good place to end. Or, or maybe even the section just after that one where David sins grievously but confesses his sin to the Lord and is forgiven. It'd be nice to end there before things really come unglued and his kingdom falls apart because his son rises up against him to claim his throne. Or maybe, maybe the Song of David, David's famous last words. There's a bookend to the opening psalm, Hannah's song, uh, song from the very beginning of 1 Samuel that, that happens in 2 Samuel 22 and 23. It's, it's, it's famous for David's last words, and it's a perfect mirror to that song on the front end of the book. It's so good as a place to end that I've actually jumped over it for today, pulling out of First and Second Samuel and amusing it in a couple of weeks as the bridge between this, this series on First and Second Samuel and, a, and, a, and an Advent series on songs about the coming king. Would have been a great place to end it. So many good options for ending this incredible story that would have tied it up with a nice little bow. But this epic story about a king on a throne reigning over a kingdom, it ends with a story of sin and judgment and blood sacrifice. Why? Before we take up that question, let me read you the story. The place that our narrator chooses to end the story of David. 
I want to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word. I'm going to read all of chapter 24 before we walk through it carefully together. This is the word of the Lord. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But, but, but why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So, so Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aror and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites and they came to Dan and from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites. And they went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So, when they'd gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I've done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So, Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come into your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord. For his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working the destruction among the people, it is enough. Now, stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned, I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded him. 
And when Arana looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arana went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arana said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arana said to David, Let my lord the king take up and offer what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arana, No, I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. This is God's word. You can be seated. I want to walk you through this story in four steps this morning. By the end, I believe we'll see why this is the place to end David's story. The first step in this story is God gets angry at Israel. Step number one, God gets angry at Israel. In fact, that first verse that I read, just that one verse raises two huge questions about God that we got to address before we before we can really get into the rest of the story, before the rest of it will make sense to us. And, and we have to address them because they can be so troubling to us if we stop to pay attention. Why is God angry at Israel? And even more, why does God incite David to do what he's going to punish David for doing? I want to sum up for you an answer that I want to break down for you for a few minutes before we go further into this story. God is perfectly just in his anger against sin and completely sovereign over all sin. That's the answer to those questions. God is perfectly just in his anger against sin and he is completely sovereign over all sin. Why is God angry at Israel? Well, the text doesn't give us a specific reason, but that doesn't mean there wasn't one. I mean, we've seen... This whole story is full of reasons that Israel has given God for his anger against them. I think the main thing to notice here is not specifically why he's angry. The whole Bible tells us the sorts of things that anger the Lord. I, I, think, the, I think the main thing to notice is who it is that he's angry at. That even when his own people sin against him, God's reaction to sin is exactly the same. God doesn't play favorites. He is holy and he's just. He is angered by evil no matter who it is that's guilty of it. He's just never calloused towards wrong, even when it's his own people. Sometimes I know seeing the Bible talk about the anger of God towards sin can be a kind of turnoff for us, especially when we bring to those passages associations that maybe don't belong there. Sometimes we can... We can see God getting angry at sin and think immediately of God as some sort of petulant boss, you know, who's always looking for somebody to slip up, you know, a, a kind of cosmic Dwight Schrute who just lives for the chance to throw the book at anyone who, 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 who breaks some specific rule inside of it. It's much better, though, much more true to the Bible and its teaching to think about God as a judge. What kind of judge do you want 
for your case. Don't we crave a judge who applies the same standard, a true and right standard, equally across the board, no matter who it is that's guilty? Recently, we were, Lindsay and I were watching a show about a judge who was known as a good judge and a really well-respected guy until his own son committed a crime. Then he started pulling levers of power real quick behind closed doors to get his son off the hook. As soon as it was his son who was guilty of killing someone, he did everything he could to keep him out of prison and then pin the crime on somebody else who was innocent so that that innocent person ended up dead for something he didn't do. And you know what? That story rings true. That is how humans see sin. They define sin based on its effect on them. I do that. Don't you? God doesn't. God is perfectly just and is angry about sin because he ought to be. He's right to be. He's holy. Okay, fair enough, you might be thinking. But, but why would God incite David to go and do something that he was going to then punish David for doing? I, okay, so he's just. He always does right. He's always angered by sin wherever he sees it. And that's a good thing, not a bad thing. I can go with you that far. But it says he incites David to go and do something. He will then punish David for doing. What's this about? I think it helps a little bit to compare this text to a parallel account of the exact same story in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. You know, just like the, the different gospels tell the same stories of Jesus but with different shades of, of detail to bring the fuller story to light. So some of the stories about David are told more than once with different details included each time. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, this story is told. And what we're told there is that Satan incited David to do this thing that God did not want David to do. Satan incited him to disobedience. That helps a little bit. But it doesn't go far enough to know that that's what's going on. Whatever role Satan played in David doing what David did doesn't change the fact that, that this text says God was sovereign over what David did at exactly the same time. 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles are not two different takes on the same situation, incompatible with one another. They're describing two different layers of what went into this one single act. The Bible teaches consistently that God is sovereign over the evil that he hates and will destroy. That at the same time, he is never guilty of sin, but he's also never caught off guard by sin either. And his purposes are never thwarted by sin. And he can even use sin, sin that he hates, to do what he wants to do. I, th I think what's happening here in this text is that David, or rather God, is using David's sin to punish Israel for Israel's sin. He's angry at Israel. And what David does is, in, in a way, an act against Israel. Israel will pay some of the consequences of what David is going to do. It's a similar situation to where Israel will be a little bit later in their history when God will send Babylon, and a, a powerful nation, full of, of evil people and evil rulers to do evil things in Israel's life that were not justifiable and that he would later punish Babylon for doing. But he, but he uses Babylon to execute a judgment Israel also deserved for their disobedience to him. It's something similar going on here. And I, I guess maybe the last thing I'll say here is that 
just to shoot straight with you, there, there's a lot about the Bible and what it says about God that I don't fully get my mind around. And this is one of those places. I, I don't know how God can be sovereign over evil and never guilty of it while we're responsible for everything we do. I just know the Bible says all those things are true. I don't understand this any more than I understand why God who hates evil would create a world that he knew would be so terribly affected by evil. I don't know a lot more than I do know. But here's one thing I do know. All our hope rests in this truth that we might not fully understand. Because we live in a world that is marred by evil that we can't control and that we can't get rid of. If you don't think that's true, your eyes aren't open. So even if I don't understand how we got here or all that is that, ends, that, that goes through the purposes of God, what I really need to know for life in the world that I know is broken and affected so badly by evil is what can be done about all of this? Where can I look for a hope in the midst of a darkness I can't escape? What can be done about this? Can, can all the sin in my life that I'm guilty of and all the evil in our world out there that I'm affected by somehow in the end, be turned to good. And the Bible's clear and unwavering answer is yes, absolutely. Because our good God who hates evil is still sovereign over it. And in the lives of his children, bringing good out of evil is exactly what he's doing right now. And there's no better example of this than Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Peter's preaching to the, a crowd full of people who had killed Jesus. They had cried out, crucify him. And he tells them at the punchline of his sermon that this Jesus they killed was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This is Acts 2.23. But then he says, you crucified him and killed him by the hands of lawless men. Delivered up according to God's plan that he made in advance and crucified by lawless men who had no right to do it, both at the same time. And all so that God could offer forgiveness and redemption to the very people who killed Jesus in the first place. Peter's sermon was an offer to them of forgiveness and peace with God. The God who worked good out of evil in the life and death of Jesus is at work today, right now. And you need to know, friends, that what was meant for evil against you, maybe even specifically you're thinking of something that was meant for evil by you that you haven't been able to outrun in your life, God can use for good. And if you're his child, that is exactly what he's going to do. And that means there, there is always hope, even in the darkest hours, because God is sovereign over evil, even evil. The first step in this story is just right there in verse 1. God gets angry at Israel. We need to understand what that's about before the rest of these steps are going to make any sense. So now to step two. Step one is God gets angry at Israel. Step two is David doesn't trust God's provision. 
David doesn't trust God's provision. So in verse 1, David is incited to take this census. In verse 2, he sends out his best man, Joab, to number the people. Joab protests against it. He knows it's not a good idea. But David insists and Joab follows through. And Joab and these other commanders spend the next nine months taking a big circle around the land of Israel. They take a circle that would have gone first east and then north and then around the top of the country and back down the coast all the way back around to Jerusalem. It takes them nine months to do it. And they report back in verse 9. In Israel, there are 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword and the men of Judah were 500,000. That's what they find out. But that raises two questions for us. How is David responsible for this? And what's wrong with what he does? How is David responsible for what he does, first of all? But then what's wrong with it? Why is it a problem? Let me take these one at a time. How is David responsible when he's doing something that he was incited to do? I think it's important to remember that even though we are often influenced in what we do by influences outside of ourselves, we are always responsible and accountable for what we do because we always do what we want. Every choice we ever make is influenced by a host of factors all around us, but every choice we make is still ours to make. So, for example, my Google app on my phone is always trying to distract me Every now and then I'll, I'll use it to try to get some sort of sermon research done. I need to find some anecdote or get some clarification on the meaning of a word. I'll pull it up. But right there under the search bar, like 10 times bigger than the search bar itself, is one article after another with a nice full-color picture based on things I've read in the past and they know I want to see. Maybe it's sports, maybe it's news of the day, maybe it's whatever new restaurant's opening up on the east side. Whatever it is, Google's constantly trying to incite me to distraction. But you know why that method works so well? Do you know why I have to avoid Google when I'm preparing my sermons? Because I want to be distracted. It's hard work. Sometimes I just want a mental break. A lot of times I just want a mental break. And when I go in there, Knowing I've got work to do, and I see an article about a new restaurant on the east side, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to read that article because I went out for a minute. I want a break. It's my choice. And I'm responsible for it. So in the Garden of Eden, Eve and Adam are influenced by Satan towards sin, but they freely choose to disobey God. And the serpent promises Eve she'd be like God if she disobeyed God's command. You guys remember that? It, it was Eve whose heart wanted to be like God in the first place. There's a reason that worked. And Satan's role and God's sovereignty over it, over it does not change that David is responsible for what he chooses to do. So what's wrong with what he does? What makes this census sinful? I mean, on the surface, to me, anyways, a census seems like a reasonable thing to do if you're a king. I mean, that, that seems like basic administrative wisdom. But it's just as clear here in the story that Joab knew better. He knew it was not just admin paperwork. And, and soon enough, David confesses it, verse 10. He knows he shouldn't have done what he did. So why? What's the problem? Friends, I think, that, I think the crucial clue here, the, the, the reason this is... This is so sinful, so 
so distrustful of, of God is found in what's actually reported back in verse 9. You know, when they bring the numbers back to David, he doesn't report how many kids are enrolled in pre-K. He reports how many valiant men draw the sword. This is about numbering soldiers. This is essentially a military draft writing down the names of all those who could be called upon at moment's notice and deployed by their king at his will for his purposes to keep his kingdom secure. So when you, when you think about this census, you need to see it as David grasping for a security system that he can see, for one that he can literally deploy for himself. This is David grasping at self-reliance. This is something you do when your security is based on what you can see with your eyes and command with your words, not based on who watches over you. In other words, what David does here in taking this census is, is deeply rooted in Israel's history, and he knew better. This is David's golden calf moment. You know, when Israel is waiting on the law, and Moses is up meeting with God on the mountain down below, Israel gets tired of waiting. They want a God they can see. They want visible security. So they make a golden calf and say, this is who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. Let's worship and serve this thing that will then do what we ask for. This is David failing the test of the wilderness, the manna that Israel was given to eat on. Remember God provided day by day to teach them to trust in him for their food, not to trust their food for their life. They, he wanted them to trust him, not the food itself. And so they couldn't store it up or it would rot because he knew exactly what they would do. They would stockpile and they would sleep better at night knowing breakfast is sitting right here beside me where I sleep. But it would rot. This is David trying to store up manna. And then the backdrop to what he does here is, I mean, it's right here in, in, in the books of Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 8. When Israel first told Samuel they wanted a king, do you remember why they wanted one? What it was they were looking for? that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. You know why the Lord said to Samuel in that moment that they've rejected me from being king over them? Because it was the Lord who had always gone out before them to fight their battles. The Lord of hosts fought their battles for them from Egypt into the promised land. He was the one they should look to to trust. But they wanted somebody they could see. This is a relentless pattern in Israel's history. Walking by sight and not by faith. David just falls right into it and doesn't trust God's provision. I wonder, friends, if you can see yourself here. Can you see yourself in what David has done? Where do you look for security when you feel vulnerable? What is it that helps you sleep at night? What do you need to see and to control to feel safe in this world? Several hundred years ago, a French philosopher named Blaise Pascal gave one of my favorite descriptions of what it is to be human. He described us humans as thinking reeds. Thinking reeds. A reed is vulnerable, right? So many things can happen to it. You get trampled underfoot. A reed can get scorched by the sun. 
get starved by lack of rain, can get eaten up by bugs or by animals, it can get burned by fire. Reeds have basically no defense system. They are vulnerable to all sorts of forces they can't control. And for some of them, only a matter of time before summer, summer turns to fall and fall turns to winter and they die with the season. Reeds are vulnerable by nature. Humans are too. But our glory and our misery is we got to think about it. Reeds don't. We are thinking reeds. And it's tough to live in a world full of dangers when you're as vulnerable as a reed who knows its vulnerability. <laughs> That's why it's no surprise to me as a culture in this modern world where we have gained so much control over so many things that affect our lives, so many forces that were uncontrollable by people before us, that we would use so much of our control and our power to make ourselves more and more and more safe. We are the most security conscious people who have ever lived as a culture. We have, I, I have on my house a doorbell with a camera inside of it costs like 50 bucks and when I can remember to keep the thing charged you know what it does it, it, it doesn't just capture the people who push the doorbell button it captures anything that moves it captures our dog every time it goes out to relieve himself it captures every car that passes down Shelby Avenue in front of our door that's a lot of cars and all of it is stored up in the cloud so that we can go back and look at it anytime and so that anyone who thinks about coming to steal our packages knows that's what we're going to do. Now, that's just the tip of the iceberg, isn't it? We have mandatory seatbelt laws. We have airbags. We have anti-lock brakes. We have insurance on our houses. We have insurance on our cars. We got insurance on our ability to work. And we have insurance on our lives. None of this has got to be bad. I mean, the Proverbs tells us to plan and to be, to be people who provide where we can. And I'm grateful for all these safety precautions. But, but have, you, have you noticed, I wonder if you've noticed a, a trend that I've seen sociologists commenting on, a connection that, that is inescapable. Right alongside all of these advances we've made in our own security, if you chart this in a graph, right alongside it, what you'll see rising is an incredible surge in reported anxiety and people coming to get care and help with feelings of anxiety they can't control and can't escape. Anxiety is definitely a complicated struggle. No one enjoys it. I'm not saying that it all reduces down to some specific failure to trust the Lord. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying we ought to realize that this connection does make sense because the more you think you're responsible for protecting the things you love, the more you'll think it's on you and no one else to keep those things safe. And that is a burden you were not made to bear. And wherever we experience insecurity or vulnerability or anxiety, what we're realizing in that symptom is that something we're leaning on is wobbly. It's wobbly as this old pulpit. Something we're leaning on is not handling our weight and that is a precious opportunity to dig deeper and then to apply the only sleep aid that the bible endorses it's not a ring doorbell system it's the promise of psalm 121 he that keepeth israel slumbers not nor sleeps it's the promise of psalm 127 unless the lord watches over the city watchman keeps awake in vain 
But <laughs> this Lord gives to his beloved sleep. So friends, guard your heart against the security that you can see and control. You need something better than that. And even more important, God deserves more than that. He is worthy of your trust. Nothing and no one else is. David does not trust God's provision. But thankfully, that's not the end of this story. Step number three, David does trust God's mercy. David does trust God's mercy. If David's sin looks all too familiar from the history of God's people, his response to his sin models exactly the sort of trust that Israel needed and the heart of the faith that, that we need too if we want to experience God's mercy towards sinners like us. Look at verse 10. David's heart is struck after he's done what he's done. And David says to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. He pleads with God to take it away. Take away the iniquity of your servant. God's response to David's plea for mercy is, comes through this prophet named Gad. And at first, I wonder if you noticed and stumbled on this. It is really strange. Did you notice this? God's response to David's confession and his plea for mercy is to give David a choice. A choice of three options as consequences for his sin. This fits the picture. God is just. God is holy. Sin has consequences. He can't let it go unpunished. But he gives David three possible scenarios. Verse 13. Three years of famine. Three months of fleeing from an enemy that wants to kill you. Three days of pestilence in your land. Which would you choose? David's response comes in verse 14, and it's out of nowhere in this ancient world. David says, let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. This is a stunning response. I love the way one Old Testament scholar sums it up. He says, for the ancient readers, this was utterly unexpected. For who, who in those old days would have chosen a visitation that came directly from the deity rather than a calamity brought about by men? See, famine would have put Israel at the, the mercy of whoever had food, merchants of corn or grain, hostile powers who wanted to see them suffer and profit from it. War would have put them at the mercy of an enemy who wanted to destroy them. Plague pestilence that comes directly from God's hand that's how David's reasoning here plague would put them at the mercy of God and that is exactly where David wants to be as this Old Testament scholar put it David did what was unexpected but but precisely in so doing he flung himself through the thick curtain of the divine anger directly on God's heart this is just stunning I saw somebody refer this week back to a story from 30 years ago or so where a kid fell into a gorilla habitat at a zoo in Illinois only to have the gorilla pick him up and gently carry him to a doorway and lay him down at the feet of zoo workers who'd come to rescue him. Anybody remember this story? It was like 30 years ago. Eric remembers. Incredible story. Amazing. And then 20 years later, 
almost exactly 20 years later, another gorilla from another zoo was in the news because another kid had fallen into the habitat. And this gorilla had spent the next 10 minutes dragging the kid all around the habitat, having his way with him. Now, the kid ended up okay. You can rest easy. But the gorilla had to be put down for doing what gorillas do. If a gorilla shows you mercy, it's great. But it's one in a million. You certainly don't expect it next time you fall into their pit. And you certainly don't go back into that pit willingly, no matter what. Because you know what a gorilla is. And David, just a few chapters before this, in this story, broken by the sin of his own adultery and the murder he had committed to cover it up, David had just fallen before the Lord, literally, confessing his sin and pleading with God to forgive him. And God showed him incredible mercy. You can read all about it in Psalm 51. Now here we are again. David has sinned grievously before the Lord. He knows exactly what he's done. He has no defense. And you might be thinking, no way he could go back to God for mercy. He just went back there. He just went to that well. Who goes back? It's a gorilla pit. Gorillas be gorillas. Don't go in there again. But he's thinking, no, this is who God is. Mercy that's who God is, a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That mercy he showed me was no fluke. It wasn't a limited time offer. It came straight out of the steadfast love of the Lord who's steadfast when we are fickle. He is as steadfast in his love and mercy as we are fickle in our faith. David knows that and he goes right back. And God does show mercy. He strikes Israel with this plague. Verse 15 says 70,000 men die from Dan to Beersheba. That ought to sound familiar. It's the same, same route that was taken in counting them. Same word for the men. We're talking about soldiers here who were killed. David's army that he trusted in, that helped him sleep at night, just got smaller in response to his sin. But then the Lord's angel of destruction comes close to David's city. And just as he's about to strike this city, the Lord says, enough, stay your hand. And verse 17 records for us the prayer that God answered from David. I have sinned, I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand be against me and against my father's house. This is David's plea. Because David knows this same God he rejected in his sin is his only hope for rescue from the consequences of his sin. David throws himself on God's mercy because he knows God is merciful to sinners who repent. Friends, if you are here evaluating Christianity today and wondering what we believe about God and what can be done for sinners who know they've made a mess of their lives, you are getting your answer right here in this story. Us acknowledging we don't deserve God's love is where our relationship with him begins, not where it ends. In some other religions, in some other ways of doing things, in the way that the world ought to work. When you reach rock bottom, it's over for you. But it all begins here for Christians. Our starting point is way more humbling than a get up and try better next time approach to life, but also way more simple. Nothing in my hand I bring, nothing. Simply to your cross I cling. Naked, I come to you for dress. Helpless, 
I look to you for grace. All I've got is my need and my desperate plea for your help. And God never says no to this prayer. And the final paragraph, the conclusion of this incredible story, we learn why. Step four, God shows mercy through sacrifice. God shows mercy through sacrifice. I've read this story already. I'll just sum it up for you here. The whole book of First and Second Samuel ends with David offering a blood sacrifice to God on the same spot that the angel of death had stopped his work. This threshing floor of Arana who sells the spot to David so David can build an altar. Verse 25, David built an altar there to the Lord and burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. Chronicles tells us this was the same spot on which Abraham had sacrificed a ram so that he wouldn't have to kill his own son Isaac. And the same spot on which Solomon would soon build a temple where sacrifices like this one would be made day after day and year after year and century after century because blood sacrifice is how God shows his mercy to sinners who repent. Every sacrifice makes the same statement. Sin is serious. It costs life. But God is merciful. He wants us to live to know him. Blood sacrifice is how God's holy anger against sin coexists with his steadfast love for people. That's sin. A steadfast love that doesn't stop. It just won't stop. But, but why in the book of Samuel here? In a way, it seems so out of character with the types of stories we've seen. Why end with a sacrifice? Why not end with that covenant or with the battles that were won or with David's wonderful song about God being faithful? Why end David's story not with David's own death even, but with a story of his sin and the sacrifice that God used to remove it. It doesn't make sense to me as an ending. If this is all there is. But zoomed out. Friends, this is the perfect ending because it's not an ending at all. This story's not over yet. And this ending points us forward like this, like this massive to-be-continued banner toward the Christ from David's line who is all of our hope. Back at the beginning of this whole story, Israel wanted a king because they thought their biggest threats were out there. They were afraid of all those enemies out there that were assaulting them. They wanted a king like those other nations had, only bigger, only taller, only more handsome and more intimidating so that those nations would be afraid of them and envy what they had. But what we've seen time and again through the story is that their biggest threats were never out there. It was never the Philistines and their Goliaths. It was always in here. It was their own sin and disobedience and idolatry that threatened to bring them down. The story opened with the kind of anointed king they were looking for. It ends with the sort of Christ they really need. A king who won't just protect them from their enemies, but who will cleanse them from their sin. That's the king they need. A king greater than David. See, David is the greatest king Israel would ever have before Jesus. But he was like his people in every respect, including sin. When David offered this sacrifice on the future side of the temple, he was just offering the blood of bulls and goats. That's all he could do was buy some goats that he could kill. And he was doing it for a judgment that, 
that, that he brought his own people on his people with his sin. He was the one who sinned. They were the ones who suffered. And all he could do about it was kill a bull. He was caught up in all the same problems he was supposed to lead them out of. And he could never set them free. Not David. But David's prayer in verse 17 hangs over the next thousand years of Israel's history. Please let your hand be against me and against my house. Let your judgment fall on my family. And after Israel had suffered through one bad king after another, through exile in Babylon and a return to this kingdom that was a faint shadow of what David left behind, in the fullness of time, God's own son was born of David's line. And the Son of God chose to become a son of David like us in every respect except for sin. He never did sin. So that he could go to the cross facing a judgment he didn't deserve. And when he did that, when he hung there to his last breath, God answered the prayer of 2 Samuel 24, 17. He let his judgment fall on David's house so that God's people could be set free forever. This good shepherd laid down his life for his sheep with joy so that now God's unending, new every morning mercy is all his people have to know. God answered David's prayer through Jesus. And now Jesus offers prayers of his own for every single one of us who trust in him. One of my favorite hymns of all time puts it like this. Five bleeding wounds he bears. Received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Don't let this ransom sinner die. And the father hears this prayer. His dear anointed one. He cannot turn away the presence of his son. He would never do that. His spirit answers to the blood. His spirit answers to the blood and tells me, I am born of God. Friends, this is all our hope in life and in death that the anointed one we need gave his life so we could live. Will you pray with me now? Oh, Father, thank you for telling us what you did through Jesus, your son. And now we pray for the faith to trust in him and the confidence to live as his redeemed people until he comes again. We long to see Jesus crowned king over all. And we ask that you help us to represent him now in the way that he deserves through words that tell of this hope and through lives that trust it and nothing else. And we pray this in his name. Amen.